once you learn at a high level, you kind of apply that to everything you do. I liken it to somebody who's really good at tennis at school, and then maybe they go down to Andre Agassi's、uh, tennis academy, and then suddenly they realize they're not as good as they thought they were. So the bar has been raised, and can you get up there? And anybody worth their while is is going to just take it as a challenge and go back and then learn things and do it properly. And doing things properly often doesn't take any longer than. Doing a shoddy job. Welcome to the Easemakers podcast, presented by Nines, for people who are passionate about the art of private service. Every estate manager has a story, and this is where you get to hear them. On this show, you'll learn from the best in the business, get tips and inspiration to fuel your career, and connect with people who get it. Subscribe now and join the conversation at easemakers.com. I'm Kristen Twyford, and on the show today, Mohammed Elzamor and I are talking with Chris Ely about his time serving as a footman to Queen Elizabeth II. Chris has been in private service for 40 years, working in New York with Brooke Astor, in Beverly Hills with Joel Schumacher, and more all over the world. He says he knew he'd found his calling in his very first job at Buckingham Palace. Basically, although I didn't know at the time, I only found out ten years ago. I'm I'm ADHD, so what I kind of one of the main things I like about it is the physicality of it. I'm moving.、Um, the other one is I just love being around people, working with people, meeting people, and it's an ideal profession for that. I want to start with a lightning round before we get into our conversation today. So, who is your favorite fictional private service professional? Oh, that's Lurch. Such a good one. We've never gotten that one before. I love him. I I wish I had that baritone. I could, you know, you rang. <laughs> I can't get that deep. You know, I don't know.、Um, I love Lurch. He's he is he's he's got to be my favorite. And.、Uh, So yes, as a, I, it was always a dream of mine to walk into a room and just to say you rang in that very <laughs> deep voice. I love that answer, Chris. What's something you do in your own home that came from your time in private service? That's a good one. Probably everything.、Uh, I think once you learn how to do things properly, there's no going back. Because once you learn how to do things properly, you can do them in the same speed as it takes to do a. A regular job. I'm not going to say a shoddy <laughs> job. I just did say it, but、um, it's it's you know I enjoy taking care of things,、um, whether it be people or antiques or、uh, clothes. I especially like looking after clothes and stuff. I, I sort of it, it it's something that just relaxes me is just to have things nice and also things prepared. You know, it's just I I go in the cupboard. I know it's going to be good.、Mm-hmm. Who is your dream principal? It can be somebody living, somebody historical, or even somebody fictional. Oh, I don't know. I think I think I I like being my own principal.、Mm-hmm. I like to. It's sort of after what forty odd years of just、um, marching to somebody else's drumbeat. It's nice to go to mine. But then with ADHD and the pandemic and everything, I just seem to be walking around in circles half the day. It's it's nice to have direction. So who would be my ideal? That's a difficult one because I've worked for 
employers in so many different fields. That's what sort of was nice. So I'm not sure because I've, I've covered entertainment, royalty. I've done socialites. I've done diplomats. They all bring a different thing. And that was why I often just picked an employer basically because it would be a different field. I mean, service is service at the end of the day. You do the best service you can. Um, sometimes it's on the beach in a polo shirt and other times you're in a, you know, a, a, a tail suit or something. So, um, I'd have to think about that. And of course, there's the, the, the old adage that no man is a hero to his valet. So once you, once you've seen the behind the curtain, as it were, you realize that people are people. And they all have their own sort of things going on. But uh, on the whole, I've been lucky with my employers. Is there a story that you like to tell from your time in private service? Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, I suppose when I worked for the Sheikh, uh, he had a, his private jet was a 707. So at the time, sort of roughly what the president had. And... Um, sometimes we'd be on there, there'd be more crew than passengers. And um, so we'd be flying around and he, he basically was a, he, well, he was a banker, but he really was a poet and a songwriter and um, Arabic music. And, um, you know, we'd get on the jet and I, I would sort of try and hide and go and find a bunk to go sleep in because I'm mean, used to work incredible hours with him. And, and uh, you know, then one day it was like, in his living area, they were all sat on the floor and he, I was the sound engineer. So he said, you know, which basically meant I had to press record when he did. And there were just so many throughout my career, surreal situations of, um, just being in places or on planes or boats. The other one I like to tell is, um, obviously I live, I've lived in a, a, the United States for many years. You know, people say, well, well, when was the first, uh, when did you first come? And it's not when did I first come, it's how I first came. And the first, the first time I landed in the United States was actually on the Royal Yacht Britannia in San Diego. So beat that one. That's, that, that, that's a good one for, for people. <laughs> so yes, that was the first time I ever came to this country was, uh, a, a, you know, aboard the, the Royal Yacht. That is hard to beat. It was in uh, February 83. We flew to Bermuda, stopped there for a couple of hours. Then we went to Jamaica. We spent three days in Jamaica. Then we went to the Cayman Islands for three days. Then we flew to Acapulco, got on the yacht. We sailed up the coast and did various things. And then we got to San Diego. And we actually ended up at the, the naval base. So it wasn't, it wasn't really glamorous, but it was amazing because it's the first time I'd seen an aircraft carrier up close. And my camera, even I had a wide angle lens, I couldn't get the whole thing in. And I was just amazed at this thing. So it wasn't truly a glamorous. I mean, when you think of pulling up in a yacht, you think of Saint-Tropez, right. um, which I've actually been on a yacht in Saint-Tropez. I was it flown to Nice, got in a car and interviewed on a yacht in Monaco Harbor. And then afterwards, I had a bit of time to kill. So I, I walked the whole of the Grand Prix course in reverse because I couldn't remember it in because yeah. the, the, swim, the swimming pool area isn't the same. So I walked around there, got back in the car and went back to London. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's what you think of when you think of a private yacht in a, 
in a harbour. It wasn't very glamorous, I think basically because of security. The other surreal, because I lived in Los Angeles for about five years and got used to the traffic. And the other, I have a photograph somewhere. It's a bit sort of uh, uh, out of focus. But uh, so we went from Long Beach to LAX on the 405 and they shut the 405 down it's the easiest ride i've ever had on the 405 it's because they they it, it was just empty i mean it was just and because I, I was in a car way back and we went down a dip and i have a picture of all the cars in the procession and, and that was all the traffic on the 405 that's wild anyone who has seen that bumper to bumper traffic can appreciate how oh, I've, amazing that I've is i've been in it so many times in fact when i worked for <laughs> When I worked for Joel Schumacher, we, I, he would go away shooting his film. And in order to keep the battery up in his car, because the, the alarm system and the phone kept draining it, and um, I didn't have this, the sense to go out and buy a battery charger and just leave it hooked up. I used to take it out for a ride every Sunday morning, very early. Um, I always remember Anita Baker was the cassette in the, um, and I'd listen to Anita Baker every time and I would drive down to El Segundo, get off, turn around and come back and that would charge the battery. And I did that for about two months. And then the, the guy who cleaned the car didn't shut the, uh, trunk properly, the boot properly and uh, left the light on. So luckily I checked it before I went to pick him up because he drained the cold battery and it had taken me all, all summer to keep this going. But oh. I learned every every lyric of uh, Anita Baker. <laughs> so worthwhile, any way you slice it. Well, we want to segue into sort of the heart of our conversation. So today, the world is mourning the loss of Queen Elizabeth II. And Chris, mm. one of your earliest roles in your career was serving as a, a senior footman to the Queen. So I want to start out just talking about how you found yourself in that situation. And then today we're going to really celebrate her and hear all about your time at Buckingham Palace. But how did that come to be? How did you find yourself at such a young age reporting for work at Buckingham Palace? Well, I'll try and make it as short as possible. But basically, I left school at 16 because it, it was a disaster school. I hated school. Yeah. So I went to a place called Thanet Technical College in Broadstairs in Kent, down on the south coast in England. And I took a two-year general catering course, which included French cookery, uh, housekeeping, and um, restaurant service. And it was a full-on course. I mean, I, you know, the government thankfully paid for it. And also my train, I lived in Canterbury at the time, and my train ticket down there, and those were the glory days before um, now you have to pay for your education, I think. Um, anyway, I went there and I wanted to be a cook or a chef and I wanted to work in a hotel in London. And, uh, I soon found out I absolutely hated cooking and I hated the kitchens. I couldn't, I just didn't really, I mean, it's the old one. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I couldn't stand the heat. And I only managed past grade for French cookery. Um, but the, the one thing I did absolutely love was they had a restaurant. It was a purpose built uh, facility and we had like a five star restaurant on the roof. And I loved the restaurant. I loved just the whole thing about it. And uh, so I kind of found my vocation there. So I did my first year and first year students 
you know, laid the table up and then they followed the second years. And then in the uh, my fourth semester during the second year, we would take it in turns to be um, head waiter. And your responsibility was if they were still paying guests, because people did actually, the public came in and got a reduced price, really nice meal. The students cooked it and the students served it. And we had, uh, we had um, instructors, of course. And um, it was my turn to be head waiter and I had to stay late. Uh, all the other uh, students went back to their classes and I just had to finish up. And um, one day the principal was in with a guest and on that day. And he said, you did really well. And his guest said, oh, you did really well. And I was like, thank you. I really you know, enjoyed it. And things went, he used me for a few uh, uh, events and then he said to me one day, oh, there's a, there, I've got two jobs. One is as under butler at the Belgian embassy and the other one was a footman at Buckingham Palace. I was like, oh, I'm interested in going to the palace. You know, I didn't want. So I go for the interview and it's very intimidating. Um, I think I said all the right things and then went home and just waited. So I'm 17 at the time. And the next thing I know is another letter comes through and I go, I wonder if I got it. And it's, you know how it is. You get that letter and you do you want to read it? And um, he said, oh, could I come up for another interview? And I thought, I don't know if I can do that again. So, of course, I did. I went up uh, to London, went to the palace. And all the, there was a, a man called Michael Timms who was the assistant to the master of the household. I forgot to mention the principal of the college was an old naval friend of Sir Peter Ashmore, who was the master of the household at Buckingham Palace. So that's where the link was. And they used to use students for large events. They'd send them up, dress them in the uniform and for banquets and, and, and such. So I went up and Michael Timms <laughs> just like, oh, are you sure you want to leave your studies? And... Um, and I thought I'd be I'd be an idiot to give up this. And also, the second year was getting not so physical; it was more listening and watching. And I needed a move. And I I tried to be as sincere as possible. I just said, um, "Yes, I thought about it very carefully, and I'd really like to do this." So he gave me a date to start, and I think it was two weeks before I actually started. And um, then I got a letter saying, could I start on the 10th of February, which is actually my 18th birthday. And I think they wanted me to be 18 before I started. So otherwise, if I'd have gone then. So I turned up on, on that day, um, suitcase in hand, and that was it. What was the first week like? How do you absorb all that and, and not be intimidated? You, you do not absorb it in a week. Number one is... It took me a while to learn the palace. I mean, it's it's massive. I think if somebody told me it's if you walk the basement is about a mile, and to think you could fit my you know the home my, my that I just come from, and the garden and a bit more into the courtyard at Buckingham Palace, it was sort of um, you get the size of it. And then the other thing was you couldn't walk on all the floors completely around because you couldn't go walking outside the Queen's apartment. So. Learning that pace took a lot. The other thing that struck me was my legs were killing me. My feet and my legs. I mean, just the amount of walking from 
from different surfaces, from carpet to marble to, um, so, you know, it took a while to get the legs conditioned. Everything, of course, was brand new all the time. And, um, but you, you were supposed to have three months with a senior footman and you would follow them around and they would just train and train. And then they'd introduce, you know, you go serve cocktails and you go serve dinner and then the clothes, looking after people's clothes. And then also the first three years as part of their training scheme was you had to spend two weeks in the glass pantry, two weeks in the silver pantry, and two weeks in the uh, cellars for three years. And they taught you how to look after things, and you weren't on your own. It was actually quite... You couldn't let anybody loose. They'd just get completely lost. Um, I only got two months of it, but you, you do... And, of course, then you learn back in Paris. Then you've got to go to Windsor Castle. Then you start all over again. Then you go to Balmoral or you go to Hollywood. So you're just a constant, which is kind of, well, Hollywood's a bit, can be a bit complex, but Balmoral is quite easy. So, and Sandringham. So you've got to learn all the houses. And um, you don't want to bump into anybody, if you know what I mean. That's very interesting. So even though you're assigned to one location, it's still necessary to cross train other castles, if you will? Oh, you do. You, you travel throughout the year. So the summer you would spend in Balmoral. Windsor, you'd be in and out of Windsor, but, you know, Ascot, which I think is in June. Um, Holyrood was a week of, a week of the year, which I think is where the Queen is lying in state now. That was only a week, and that was about the time of Wimbledon. And then, of course, you get on the Royal Yacht, you had to learn the Royal Yacht and so-and-so. Yes, it, it, it takes a while, and uh, they're not all shaped the same way, and they're not all in the same layout. So anybody who started a new job will know finding your way around the house is uh, the first thing you need to learn. But these places were huge. Mm-hmm. Did you meet the queen or see, you know, serve the queen on your first day working there? Do you remember no, your first time no. working with her? I think the first day I unpacked my bag and was shown how to get downstairs to the dining room so I could have something to eat. And then mm-hmm. I think I just went out and took a walk around. And then that week, I didn't even have a uniform because what they, they, they have a store of uniforms and you basically go down there and find one that fits you. And then they have somebody, um, they were all tailor-made for us. So uh, you find one that fitted you. And then when yours was made, you got yours. But after that, you, you didn't go wandering on anywhere and until you had your uniform and the other funny thing was they would give you a pair of shoes every year and uh, they would give you this little requisition form and you'd have to go off to harrods and uh, but you'd have to go to the harrods children's department and <laughs> it's kind of weird you go sit in the harrods shoe children's shoe department and get your your uniform shoes and uh, okay. so from then on you were you were never alone. You couldn't be alone because you just get lost, to be honest with you. I mean, I knew the way down the elevator to get down to the basement. And you just asked people which way is the, the dining room. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you remember the first time that you served the Queen? I don't know the first time I served her, but certainly the first time I saw her was at a cocktail party. Quite a large one. And... I was working with a guy called Tony. He was he was my minder, as it were. 
and there were a few, a couple of other people, and they just said, uh, I said, I've never seen the Queen in person, because we'd all seen her on the television. And uh, I said, I said, can I, you know, can you show me what, and they said, yeah, she's, uh, she's over there. And they pointed in direction. So they gave me a tray of drinks, pre-mixed drink. And I sort of wandered over and people took drinks. And I went back, I said, I couldn't see her. And uh, they said, oh, she's right there. And, and that went on about another two times. And I said, I, I, are you making a joke out of me? And they go, no, 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 she's right there. Just walk straight ahead. She's in that group right there. And as I walked towards the group, I almost got to the group and I'm kind of looking around. She turned around. Um, and I just sort of was like, <sighs> just kind of took the breath away. And there she was stood in front of me. The, the one thing I didn't take into consideration was how um, petite she was. And I was a kind of looking over her head. That's what it was. And... Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's the first time I saw the Queen in person. And luckily, I didn't spill the drinks on her or anything. But uh, <laughs> yes, it had to be such a huge moment, right? I mean, this larger than life figure. And yet she's so small and right there in front of you. How did that feel for um, you? Yeah, she her? makes well, she makes up for it. It's like Brooke Astor was. <laughs> she was very petite. I think she was five, mm-hmm. five foot one or something. But they're big personalities. I mean, they just, the only thing was, of course, was I'd only ever seen her on television. And, um, you know, that's the remarkable thing because she reigned for 70 years. So you have to be 70 years old or older to have, like my mother, while she was alive, had been under two monarchs. I mean, the queen came to the throne when my mother was 14. Um, So she'd been under the king. Now she's been under three monarchs, but for most of us, that's all we ever knew as a head of state. I mean, they might change, you know, age her a little bit on, on coins and, and photographs, but that's, that's basically, you know, the only, the only person you knew. I mean, over here, of course, you, you have a, your president could be four years, could, could be eight years. But she was always there, and that, that's where I think a lot of the grief's coming from. Is um, And she wasn't always on television and things. I mean, she would she would uh, make speeches like she did in the middle of COVID and just, uh, and it it's a very calming um, thing when she actually comes to you know, talk at, a, a, at something like that uh, during COVID or times of trouble. And... Um, don't think a lot of Americans, at least my, my walking buddy, a lot of people don't really get the depth of that. And it's like, you know, it's somebody who's always been there with you through your life. It's true. P- people feel that way when they lose celebrities that they've been watching yeah. for years from childhood. So I can see how that could be a much deeper connection. Uh, Chris, besides her physical stature, what about the Queen surprised you when you started working there? Um, I mean, I didn't have a daily interaction with her, but what really struck me? Um, I mean, I, to be honest with you, at first I was absolutely terrified of her. I mean, you know, it's sort of like you mess up, you know, you, me- you mess up in front of her and it's like, you know, there's, there's your monarch in front of you. Um, the more you learn about it, it's funny because of the weekend of, uh, 
yesterday, a friend of mine sent me a photograph of um, the Queen. Do you know who Nick Mason is? He's the, the drummer for Pink Floyd. And he's a huge Ferrari collector. And there's a picture of, she must have been 80 at the time, of her checking his uh, oil, the dipstick, checking the oil. She's leaning over this Ferrari with Nick Mason there. And um, so I sent my friend this photograph of her when she, during the war, when she was, you know, helping out. She had a uniform, and that was what she did, was, you know, learned the mechanics of a car. And that was sort of part of the, re you know, she's, um, I'm trying to, trying to find a word. What I wouldn't, I mean, down to earth kind of comes to a manner, but not down to earth. I mean, she, you always knew who she was and she knew who she was, of course, but, um, there was just, you know, this wasn't, you know, we see in the movies, oh, it's good to be king and they're lying back and somebody's giving them wine and they're doing nothing all day. That, that wasn't her. And, um, very knowledgeable, very into a, a lot of things, and spoke languages. I mean, this was this was, uh, you know, somebody to look to look up to, and to be respected. And so that, that's what you did, and you were very proud of who you worked for. I mean, it's not bad for your first full time employer, is it? Not bad um, at all. I worked in restaurants and the gas station. Next thing I know, is my first full time employer was her. So amazing. It's so interesting because, you know, just knowing her from seeing her on TV or, you know, reading what she's written or even seeing, you know, depictions of her in sort of historical fiction type stories about her. She seems very humble um, and yet she commanded such respect and she always knew her her duty. Um, what was it like for you to be a part of the team that kept Buckingham Palace running every day? What was that honor? Well, I think one of the main things for me was I realized how lucky I was, at least for, for, for my um, line of work, to basically be trained by the best. I mean, we had a lot of fun, but when it came time to work, it was, it was you know, it was very serious. And mm -hmm. to be shown how to do things, to be given the time to learn and... Um, you know, you realize that you were representing the country because people came from all over to the residences and sometimes you got to go to other countries. So it was sort of wonderful to sort of learn high standards from day one and be taught all sorts of things by people that knew what they were doing and get to time to learn how to handle glass china and, you know, silver and clean them and and how to do all these things with uh, a certain amount of patience mm -hmm. also we would end up on the back of carriages quite often so that was actually quite good fun <laughs> you get to go outside and uh, ride around on carriages for all sorts of different occasions when i started there i asked the deputy sergeant footman i said well what's the definition of a footman because we all know what a butler is and all this and he basically said to me, um, you know, jack of all trades, master of them all. And I, th I, I kind of took that, I, not kind of, I did take that as a challenge. Because I was sort of fun uh, fortunate that I'd already been to culinary school, so I knew how to cook for myself. Now I knew how to take care of clothes and various other things, how to pack a suitcase properly. It, it was sort of, um, it was like a 
those few years were sort of like a self-sufficiency and uh, self-care um, education. And um, also, you know, to sort of be introduced to this larger community of domestic workers. Of course, these days it's easy because everybody has the internet. We had no internet. So I, I, I learned a lot of skills. Um, I didn't learn housekeeping very much at college and I didn't learn. In fact, they, they even cleaned our rooms and made our beds for us. So it was kind of, I think they probably figured a lot of people wouldn't make their beds or clean their rooms. So they did it for you. So <laughs> a little East London lady called Flo used to come and uh, take care of my, my room and there would be a fresh towel for me and they'd even give you a bar of soap. Um, make sure you're clean. And that sort of goes back to the days when you gave it and uh, you, you give people what they need and they have it. And I, I sort of took that as a lesson, which is um, give people as much information, tools, um, direction, training as you possibly can. And I sort of followed that through my career as if, if you give people what they need, invariably they'll do a good job. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I heard you say a minute ago was that they gave you the time you needed to learn. And I can imagine that when you're in Buckingham Palace, you know, sort of on the world stage, just learning this job, the fear of making a mistake has to be a lot of pressure. So how did they handle it if you made a mistake or how did they help you sort of get in front of things so that you wouldn't make a mistake? Well, that, that goes, um, so obviously I was, you know, with a senior footman at least for two months. I kind of found a lot of it easy because I think I just found my niche in life of what I was doing. Mistakes, they trained you properly. They showed you and you had time to ask questions. And, you know, in, in the old days, uh, I know a lot of people get into this line of work. They didn't start in a lower position um, because there aren't a lot of the big houses left anymore. I mean, the Whitney's, I think they, they used to, to run a full thing. And of course, all the houses in England where they could afford to have somebody come in as an under butler or, or as a footman or, or, and to learn, to learn their trade, as it were, basically as an apprentice. And, um, that, that's another reason I feel so lucky is I was given the time and, um, and the opportunity to learn properly. So mistakes, we all make mistakes. I can't even, I, I mean, I made some stupid mistakes. Like we were going on a royal tour and I put my uniform in a, in a, a clothes bag and hung it on the back of my door. And uh, in my rush to, to leave, I completely forgot my uniform. And I got on the royal yacht and suddenly decided, <laughs> I haven't got my uniform. And luckily, somebody else had bought oh, no. two. Um, so I learned a huge, a huge lesson there. Is uh, and something I followed to this day and teach to this day is uh, checklists. Always have a checklist. Always count. Always look at this. And I, for the for the world of me, I can't remember that there it was hanging on the back of the door when I got back. And I never hang things on the back of the door now. Everything is uh, what's going with me is on the floor by the front door. It's, it's right mm -hmm. there within sight. And, um, yeah. so you, you, you know, you learn that was a, that was just a really stupid mistake. And then also, 
you know, I broke a really nice piece of china. I was lifting a dish off of the table and it, it basically snapped in my hand. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it was painted by Edwin Landseer, who was uh, Queen Victoria's, uh, I think her favorite artist. And it was a hand-painted dish that had been fired and it had fruit in it. So I had weight in it and I just put one hand and it went right in my hand. And I almost laughed because it was like, you know, we all tell our parents, oh, it broke in my hand. And this actually did. And I was like, oh my, I, I'm going to get it for this. And the man who was in charge of the China, who actually was a wonderful person, but I thought I'm going to get it here. And he, he came up to me and he, he said, uh, you've never spent time in the China pantry, have you? I said, no. And he said, so I can't blame you or fault you for what you did. You haven't been shown how to pick a dish up with two hands and to support it while you're doing it. So that was sort of the culture there was very much just, you know, from simple things to more complex things you were shown, you were taught. And he was, you know, very reasonable about it. Well, more than reasonable, because he said, I can't blame you for it. I'm still learning now. I mean, I, I think that's one of the reasons I love this line of work is there's always something new and you, you can't know everything. And, um, you know, these days I'm more into environmental things and health and, as I say, self-care and um, uh, the environment's a big one. Um, how do I do this without using a really bad chemical? I've gone a, a lot, you know, gone back to basics a lot with that. So you're always, always learning. One of the things about Buckingham Palace is they have clockmakers, they have uh, upholsters. They have two guys who, in those days, I don't know if they do this now because I, I know they did a lot of changes there. Or, there were just two guys doing gold leaf all day on banquet chairs. I, mean, I just thought it was hilarious. You've got to do all these banquet chairs. I think it was about 180 of them or something. And so I learned, I had a quick lesson in how to do gold leaf, which of course I've forgotten now. But um, And there was <laughs> just, it, it was like a mini city. And some days I wish I'd spend a little bit more time uh, asking if I could spend a bit of time like in the cabinet maker's office and uh, the clock makers uh, have a look at clocks because all of these things later on in life I had to deal with. Mm -hmm. Thinking about, you mentioned the culture at Buckingham Palace. What else did you learn about creating a healthy environment for household staff when you were at Buckingham Palace that you have carried on in your other roles in private houses and then also in your training career now? Well, I think going back to, you know, you give people the right tools, the right training, you give them time to practice, which is sort of how when I do consulting and training, I do the same method. I don't do it all in one day. I'll come back a week later. How did it go? Come back another week later. If they're not getting it, um, spend a bit more time. Um, and explain to them why you're actually doing it. Why are you doing this? You know, one of the things there was the amount of uniforms we had to look after because we also used to valet for the, the household. So, you know, one day you'd be brushing a bear skin and um, uh, polishing a, a Sam Brown, all these sort of things. So you were dealing with all sorts of fabrics and leathers and metals. And the culture there was sort of, it's very, very hierarchical there, of course. 
you know, we even had separate dining rooms in those days for different grades of staff. And we would serve the senior members of the royal household, like our private secretary and people. Um, so that it was very, um, old world, even Downton Abbey kind of, uh, that hierarchical thing. I'm sure it's much the same there now, but, um, a little gentler. I don't know about so much the health. I mean, we laughed a lot. I mean, we, we had a good time. There was a lot of young people there. We had a, we had a good time. And, um, as I say, we were always mucking around, but when it came to the front of the house, when you, when you hit the carpet, as it were, you, you, you know, straightened up. And, uh, so it was, it was good like that. Moving on from Buckingham Palace and finding yourself in California and all these different situations, did you miss the formality of Buckingham Palace or did you feel a sense of relief to be in a house that was a little no, bit less I, formal? I came to New York. I worked briefly for a, a diplomat. That was, uh, that was a formal house. Then I went to California, of course, and that was more informal. Um, a lot more informal. In fact, I, basically most of the time I worked, I was in a, a, a polo or a t-shirt and a pair of shorts or jeans or something and only put the, you know, dressed up for, for entertaining. But still, service is service. I still called my boss Mr. Schumacher. I didn't call him by his first name. Um, but it, a lot, a lot less formal. But at the same time, service is service. And if you're going to do it properly, you're going to do it properly. And everything um, was done as nicely as possible. It was just a different style. And then I used to do catering with a friend of mine who used to run the uh, executive dining room at Warner Brothers at the, the, the movie place. And um, I used to go and help out over there or we'd go to other places and um, work at the beach or various other places all around town. And I always say to people, if you get an opportunity and you need more experience with anything, uh, do catering. I mean, I was doing it all the time. I was at Buckingham Palace, all the embassies and different events around London. And you really speed you up. It, it You have to think on your feet and you get to see, a, a, you know, all sorts of different styles. I remember I worked at the Spanish embassy once and uh, that was the... F you know, in America, they tend to, when you take a plate away, they like you to put a plate down right away. They don't like the place covering. Now, the English don't do that. They take all the plates away, and then somebody will come with a stack of hot plates and put them all down at once, and then the food will come straight after that because the, the heat of the plate keeps the food warm. But at the Spanish embassy, we were always taught, you, you take a plate away, you have to put one down immediately because you can't. So there's all these different cultural things to learn at the table. And of course, over in America, there's, uh, you know, London is very much the same pretty much everywhere you go, especially in the diplomatic world. They all know what to expect and it's all done the same way. Uh, over here, you know, you can get a lot more different cultural in, uh, differences. I work for for Kuwaiti for a while, and that was very much um, family style. All the food on the table, bringing dishes, taking the dishes out, handing them, and much the same with the sheikh when I worked for him. Um, so you're, you know, it's it's a different style, but still, you got to serve it nicely, and you got to do it, you know, do it as well as possible. 
Can you think of a time when you were working at Buckingham Palace where you sort of looked around and said, wow, I can't believe I'm here, like a moment that really wowed you? Well, one of the things that was sort of when you're at school and you look in books and you see these portraits, and there occasionally you would come across one of these portraits that you'd seen and you go, oh, the whole thing was surreal, to be honest with you. A lot of it was when you just looked at the scale of everything and the, you know, the pomp and ceremony. And I mean, I say I was intimidated when I first went there, but then a lot of people would come and be intimidated. So you, it was sort of like making them feel at ease. The other thing that was remarkable about it was one of our jobs, if, if we were on that rotor, uh, was to pick up all the newspapers at the front door. Uh, the, the one you see on the on the TV, or the one to the right, you'd have to go pick up all the newspapers, and you would deliver them around various areas of the palace. But the, a whole set of newspapers, every single one, would go outside the press department, and they had a big table, and you'd be putting them down and going, "Oh yeah, we did that yesterday," and you were living in history. So it, yes, it was very, very surreal that you would just be seeing now i started february the february the month before charles was engaged to diana they got married later that year so there was you know you pick up the paper and you go oh yes and you'd see and if if you didn't know what they were up to you knew what they were up to but you'd see what was going on at the palace and that to me was um you got used to it, but at first it was it was very strange. I had a friend who I worked with, and she had an opportunity to go work for President Bush's family. And she asked me, she said, should I leave this job and go do this? And I said, yes. I said, because you will see things, hear things, and meet people, and get to do things you never get to do anywhere else on, unless they're, I mean, ultra-wealthy. But um, I said, every day will be different. You'll be part of history. You will see history firsthand. And that was the thing, one thing, especially starting around the time when Diana, Lady Diana was um, around, was, you know, you watched it. I haven't watched all The Crown. I can't watch that season for some reason. Um, but you see all the things in there, there she would be. I think her car sold, her Ford Escort sold for, I can't remember, it was a huge amount of money. This was just last week. It was like, I don't know if it was half a million pounds or something, this sort of regular, regular car. And I remember seeing that in the courtyard. And it was just weird to see these sort of things and you go back on it and you just realize how lucky you were and how privileged you were to sort of do it um, even for a short time. And that was such a huge moment in the monarchy's history when Diana came in. And that was just, I mean, incredible to be a part of that. Well, of course, I didn't know any different because I just started there myself. And the funny thing was, I think she was just like a year older than me. Um, But yes, to see all of this and um, uh, all within my first year there. Absolutely amazing. Are you a fan of The Crown? When you watch it, do you relate to it? Do you see little things that you say, oh, yeah, I used to do that? I, I really enjoyed the, as I say, I got up to the point where Diana was in it. I, I just can't watch it. Um, I, you know, you always take it, especially with movies and TV shows, you always have to take it with a pinch of salt because they change history. 
And I was, uh, one thing that did make me laugh though was, uh, when the, the queen was in Kenya at treetops and they suddenly had to leave because her father had died, the king had died. And I'm watching the, the dresser in the background packing the bag without tissue paper. And I was just like, no, no, they got that wrong. Of course, the other thing is I had to watch um, Downton Abbey because everybody was like, well, is that what happened? I was like, in the end, I just broke down and watched Downton Abbey. Um, if they haven't watched Downton Abbey, I say, well, g- give yourself a break. And just Julian Fellows, who wrote Downton Abbey, also wrote Gosford Park, which is sort of a bit of a black comedy, but... If you really want to see how, how a house was in those days, go watch Gosford Park. It's, it's well worth it. And it's a brilliant cast. And, um, it does sort of show you. I mean, I come from the dinosaur era, era. So I don't know how it is now, but, you know, large houses with staff rooms and until I tell what 2009, 2010, I'd always been live in. I'd, I'd always lived in at my boss's house, and this this was uh, much, much, well, slightly the same as that. Interesting. What's one thing that you learned from Queen Elizabeth or one thing that you admired about her? Oh, just her discipline and the, the fact that um, she hardly put a foot wrong in her 70-year reign. I think that's just incredible, just the discipline the devotion, just, I don't know, it's so hard these days to find somebody to really look up to and to follow. And it just seems, you know, constantly people disgrace themselves or you find out. And But basically with her, I mean, she was, you know, a very good, decent person. And yes, it's sort of... Uh, Barely a mistake the whole time. Apart from that, I, I can't really add what I, what else has been said, but it's just sort of you're always proud of her. Whereas I won't mention any names, but you might, I mean, all around the world you see different presidents. And that's, how I think, basically why I'm a monarchist, because they're not looking to be re-elected. Of course, they're looking to stay in the position they are, unless we become a you know republic but um there's always that sort of steady steady thing there i don't know how king charles is going to be but um for all my life except for the last week basically it's been the same person that really is amazing and it is really nice to hear from somebody who has been behind the scenes you know that you still admire her so much Anything that we haven't covered? Anything that you want to add? Just to say, I mean, I've had a a wonderful career. It's been great fun. I realized during the pandemic, a lot of people have no idea how to look after themselves. And um, so I kind of try to take what I've learned and I'm going to try and put it out there in an easy, easy way for people to learn how to take care of themselves and uh, basically self-sufficiency and self-care, and also the environment. We've got to look after the environment. So I figured if you can teach people how to take care of stuff and how to make the right decisions, there'll be less waste. From day one in the palace, we never wasted anything. We never used paper towel. We didn't even have lint rollers. I mean, the amount of black we dealt with, we used to wrap uh, packing tape around the back of our hand the, the wrong way. 
and use it as a very last step because we were always told that uh, you know some of the sticky could come off on the cloth and then it's just going to stick even more. I don't think we used any consumables. We washed cloths. Um, and I've been much the way. I mean, I buy a six-pack of paper towel. It's going to last me a year, if not longer. I don't use it. It's like you're just cutting trees down to make that. And also the cleaning products as you're getting itchy eyes or something in the back of your throat is just telling you I'm being poisoned. Um, that's one thing. And also the confidence was given to me by being trained properly that I, c I could do it. I could manage a dining room. I could manage an employer. And, but as I say, I got lucky. I mean, once you've worked there, who, who else is there of a similar level? There really isn't anybody. Um, so that was fortunate. It's a good line of work, as long as you can put up with the, the hours and the, um, the physical part of it. And, uh, and if you find a good boss, you're, you're, you're in, in good order. And what an incredible first boss. Well, that's, Queen that's, uh, I mean, yes, <laughs> I mean, I keep saying how fortunate and lucky I was that, um, that I, that I got to do that and I got to experiment and uh, to experience. Thank you to Chris Ely for being on the show today. Be sure to subscribe to the EaseMakers podcast to hear more conversations like this one and join the EaseMakers community to talk with other people who love private service on a regular basis. The EaseMakers podcast and the EaseMakers community are presented by Nines, the first dynamic household management platform built for discerning households and the private service professionals who support them. Visit NinesLiving.com to see how Nines can help you bring your house manual to life so you can live with ease. I'm Mohamed Elzamoy. And I'm Kristen Twyford. And we'll see you next time on the Easemakers Podcast. When you start, one shot.